This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld reference. Um, this is That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. My name is Lisa Traeger. Hi. Hi. My name is Kara Clink. Hi, Lisa Traeger. <laughs> you know what we do on this pod, you guys. We are going to go through an episode of SVU. We're going to talk about the true crime was based on, and we're going to interview some super talented person from the episode. And I'm so excited for today's episode. Oh, yeah, we have an awesome interview today. And, but, and before we start that, I just like to find out what's going on with Lisa. Um, you know, same old, same old, just suitcase, hotels, out and about, trying to control my life, but I can't stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I am really excited um, because Carly, Cl- I stopped watching Project Runway when Carly Kloss became the host. And now she is gone and there's a new season of Project Runway and I feel blessed beyond belief. And there's just no model now? There's no host. So and like Brandon Maxwell is the lead judge slash host. And Christian Siriano is such an involved uh, mentor and in the workroom. And I like all the people. And there was a lot of drama in the second episode. But I'm just happy to have. Wait, so I, can I just ask? Christian is like the Tim Gunn now. But correct. Tim Gunn never sat in on the judging. Does Christian sit in on the judging? No, he does no. not. Okay, got it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Tim Gunn, same vibes. Got it. I love Tim Gunn. What do you think he's up to? Hopefully teaching still, inspiring people, working on a set, styling, writing a book, making money, retired. Yeah. Whatever he wants, honestly. Yeah. Let's head to mood. I love him. <laughs> I like the red lobster. Um, it's wild <laughs> that Santino was a judge on drag race early seasons. Um, Santino is terrible. Wait, what do you mean? Santino tells people not to get the vaccine. Santino is a nutball. He's like, do not get the vaccine. Oh, but he was he they got rid of him on Drag Race well before vaccine chats, right? Sure. I'm just talking about nowadays. Santino's a bad person. He was not that good of a person during his season either. He was known as the asshole. Talented, but an asshole. Isn't he what the like you and your no, no, no drag knowledge have an ass. Isn't that like about him? Like, yeah. Yeah, it is wild. He was a judge on that show and for a while. But a lot of people, I mean, Carson and Ross don't know drag, right? They don't do drag. They don't do it, but they're gay. They're part of the community. I mean, he's fashion, but he's not gay. You know, like, I don't know. But why did Rue choose him? Like, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what? I don't know. I guess because of the fashion part of it. Like, he was supposed to look at, like, their fashions and be like, you know, and he would tell them that they looked like hookers or something right didn't he always like use the wrong words (laughs) i don't know but i um i just love skilled competition reality shows yeah and bravo excels and drag race of course but like i love when people have a passion and they're exhibiting their inspiration and skills and competing and funny i just like oh god Yeah, I think uh, that I've always gravitated more towards skill-based reality, except for my housewives. None of them have many skills. Oh, they got a um, skill. They have skills. 
Some of them do. To irritate my fucking heart and brain <laughs> and nervous system. Um, I know that you are, you do watch Atlanta. Did you hear? I heard today, but I don't know if it's real that Marlo is becoming a cast member. I would be thrilled. Marlo's getting a peach, baby. I hope Marlo gets a peach and I hope Doree, you know, gets eaten by a shark that Marlo <laughs> catches. Okay. That's what I, that's what I believe. The way she talked to Garcelle, she has not, she has not yelled at another housewife the way she yelled at Garcelle. That bitch is not for me. But Lisa, her children are exposed to people of uh, brown and black skin color all the time. And they're in the employ of the PK family. She's terrible. I've always hated Dorit. Um, I don't know why she's there. I don't even think, I don't know. I, and now we have to look at her $130,000 wedding dresses or whatever. She, oh no. I think it was a $35,000 wedding dress Listen, that she was selling. I do have to say this. My cousin did have a $30,000 wedding dress. By Dorit? No. Well, there we go. No, by Panina Tournay Custom. Yeah, it was a Panina. Thank you. It was, it was a, a Panina. Panina. <laughs> Oh my god. I um yeah. I I think it's so funny how the wedding world has like its own full like celebrity fashion. Like like the designers of wedding dresses are just like oh it's a panina. Like nobody that hasn't gotten married has heard of that. Like that's never on like in vogue, you know what I mean? Like Yeah, or like I'm Sally or I'm Sal or I'm whatever. Sala, yeah. Um I have an I'm Sala in my closet right now no so, as a bridesmaid a bridesmaid's dress. Wow. No, I, I didn't pay we've... for it. That was Ooh. actually a friend of mine. That was a friend of mine who had me as a bridesmaid when I was like a new, I was like a new comic. And she was like, I'm just going to pay for your dress. All my other bridesmaids like have lucrative jobs. You, this is a drop in the bucket comp compared to like a wedding. I'm just going to pay for it for you. And I was like, I'm not going to argue. Thank you. <laughs> like, Are you guys still friends? Yes. My Shout dear friend, out. Marty, you've met her. Okay, great. Thanks, Marty, Marty. from Chicago. That wedding was in Chicago. <laughs> oh my God. The one with 800 kids going to the aquarium. Uh, yes, that's Marty. She took my child and her four child children to the aquarium by herself. She's a psycho. Beautiful home though. Oh, they just sold it. They just sold it. They moved somewhere else, but they're still in Chicago. So we'll see it next time we go to Chicago. We'll see what the new home is. Um, no, I'm glad she paid for it. I don't know if I've talked about this already, but when I got to wear a Jessica McClintock dress to my sister's wedding, when I was in sixth grade, that really meant a lot to me. Do you know that was my senior prom dress? Was it Jessica McClintock? I could have guessed. If I had three guesses, I could have guessed because I, I loved her. I loved her too. This dress is so insane. I'm going to put it on the Instagram. You guys yes. are going to see my prom dress. And you got to put up your Jessica McClintock from your sisters. We're doing a Jessica McClintock <laughs> carousel. That's a great <laughs> idea. Oh my God. I can't wait. I love a TBT. Um, <laughs> but why did she go under? It's so weird. She meant so much to me. Oh, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. Not in the same capacity. I don't think like, I don't have you seen, when was the last time you heard of a Jessica McClintock? Well, I don't go to prom anymore. I mean, I didn't think that anybody besides like high school girls wore Jessica McClintock. Oh, you don't think it was also bridesmaid heavy? No, I, not that I thought of. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> but maybe I could be wrong. I used to read YM and 17 and like when prom was coming up, that was like, ev like multiple spread, like page spread for Jessica McClintock. I was a teen people girl. Ooh, that was my uh, favorite. Oh man. I was and Mademoiselle. Were you Mademoiselle? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I also liked sassy, but one time I got sassy and the cover 
said chicks with sticks. It was about girl drummers. And my mom thought that was like a little bit much and said that I couldn't read that magazine anymore. <sighs> they were being cheeky, but did you even get the cheekiness? Yeah. No, I didn't think I was like, yeah, I didn't. I didn't think I was going to get some kind of uh, pornographic penis material at all. Yeah, I miss magazine culture. I'll get a Vanity Fair here and there, but I subscribed to Vanity Fair, but that's just because it was like $8 for a full year because um, they're all like the magazine industry is dying so hard that they want they'll do anything for you. I know, but Vanity Fair is good. Like they're so good. But yeah, it's just everything changed because I used to love Us Weekly and stuff, but like we have Instagram. We have yeah. the internet. There's just like those don't really translate. I like those when I'm getting my nails done if they have it. Yes. You know, but yes. like I'm not buying it anymore because we have Instagram. Also, I got really annoyed at people when they like put after one of their reporters claimed that Donald Trump assaulted her. They put him like on their cover two weeks later and that made me really annoyed. And I was kind of like, I think I'm done with people, but I dabble if it's at the nail salon. Well, now because of COVID, that's another thing. There are no magazines at the nail yeah. salon. Yeah. That's why. Oh, wow. I forgot. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even realize. <laughs> no, sometimes things happen and you're like, uh, why not that? And it's like, oh, yeah, the pandemic. <laughs> oh, yes, I forget. All right. Let's truly forget about it. Yeah. Let's get going to today's episode. It's another goodie. And we just we can't wait to get going. All right. Today's episode is Imprisoned Lives. It is season 15, episode two on Hulu. They have this as one episode. So if you are starting to watch this, it starts halfway through the Hulu episode at about the 42 minute and 41 second mark. Just an FYI to you guys. And it's like it's not just only like, oh, it's a little bit of another episode. Bada bing, bada boom. It's like the worst episode of all time. It's Mariska and fucking William Lewis. So it's also like, get this. You cannot force this on me. Yeah, they should be separated. Hulu needs to stop what they're doing. These are separate episodes on other platforms. They are separate. So it is the second episode of season 15, but it is the second part of a two-parter. And the first part is Olivia escaping from the clutches of the evil William Lewis, played by Pablo Schreiber, who everybody says is hot. But I truly, I cannot see his hotness because of porn stash on Orange is the New Black and William Lewis on this show. I guess if I, when I look at his Instagram, I'm like, okay, I do see an attractive man there, but I just like, I can't get it going for him because of the horrible characters he's played. No, and maybe if it was one horrible character, but two, that whore, it's like, bro, get away from me. Yeah, and I mean, wildly, he probably doesn't give a shit because he probably has a super hot wife, but I think he should know that it's hard for me to find him attractive. Um, but we, basically, this episode opens with a two months later card at the bottom, uh, and we see Olivia returning to her trashed apartment. We see a chair knocked over with, like, duct tape tied to it. The place has just been totally, like, fucked up. And this is, like, one of those things that I think the show kind of touches on about being a victim of a crime like this that you don't see in like other movies and media. Like, yeah, if you get attacked in your apartment, like you have to go back to your apartment. The police don't clean it up for you after they come and like dust it for prints and t like take everything apart or like whatever that like there's blood on the carpet. Like, I just think it's a very interesting thing that they touch on. And like, 
a lot of women that are assaulted don't have the option to just be like, and then I just got a new apartment because I couldn't go back there. You know, like that's not an option for a lot of people. So it's really fucked up if you are assaulted in your home, like how you have to deal with that. I just was, it was making me think of that when I saw the horrors that Olivia was walking in on. And you can tell she's taken aback by walking in there. Uh, like she has not walked in there since the the incident and she's having full flashbacks of what happened. Uh, we see Cassidy is with her. He's trying to help her, but she's very like, I got it. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then we cut to her being like, I'm fine straight to her in a self-defense type workout class. Like who, who, who. And it really makes me miss working out in a class with people. I mean, not in a self-defense class, but you know, I really like boxing and Zumba and group activities. And I'm not doing that right now with the pandemic. And her, now then we're in her therapist's office, who is Dr. Peter Lindstrom, played by Bill Irwin. And I don't, we've talked about him before, but I don't think we've touched on his background, this actor. I looked him up and he is a Tony Award winner for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. He's also Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street on Elmo's World. I don't know if we ever touched on that, but apparently no, I would have him. maybe put some respect on his name if I knew he had a Tony. <laughs> I've been very yeah. disrespectful to this guy. Yeah. Bro has a Tony and bro is one of Elmo's tight, tight homies. So Liv is telling Dr. Lindstrom how she is really angry. And I don't think we've seen Olivia before William Lewis. I don't think we've seen Olivia in therapy besides the slaves episode where she's getting like mandated therapy from the department. Like this is the first time we see her in like a therapeutic situation. So she's telling Wait, Dr. Lindstrom. What about after the jail rape moment? Did she have, did she go to therapy? I don't know. I'm asking. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't remember a therapist. That's why. Yeah. I mean, they've, uh, yeah. Like she's also been evaluated by Mary Stewart Masterson. There's been like little adjacent things, but this is the first time I feel like we see her in serious therapy. And, um, She's telling Dr. Lindstrom how she's really angry that Lewis should have been caught and then his victims wouldn't have been raped. And then he's like, and how you were raped. And she's like, I wasn't raped, just assaulted, just badly assaulted. So I think we do get the sense that she wasn't actually, I used to think it was very uh, ambiguous, but I think it's clear she wasn't raped for, by him, just assaulted horribly. And he's trying to get her to drop the tough gal act and admit that something very traumatic happened to her and that it's okay to not be okay. And, um, she's, you know, she's just talking about how her apartment is so dark. She went back there. She realized that she hasn't really thrived there and she thinks she's ready to go back to work. She's taking pages from Maloney. She's like, let me back at work. You know, the doctor asks if SVU is the best place for her at the moment. And, uh, he's like, you know, you're reevaluating your relationship with your home and your relationship with your person. And it would make sense to look at your job too. And he asks, have you given any thought to the toll that this job takes on you? And she's like, not for a second. He doesn't get to take that from me. So it's really serious. Like nobody takes SVU away from Olivia. Um, and she says the thought of leaving SVU doesn't scare her. What scares her is walking back into the squad and everyone looking at her and wondering if she's okay. I deeply relate to this. I feel like so many times I cry, I like cry over things where I'm just like, people are looking at me, people are asking about me and I just want everyone to like ignore me right now or something. Do you know that? You know what I mean? Like to me, the eyes of other people makes it more, it makes it worse than the actual thing that happened. So I, I relate. Uh, and then we cut to that moment where she is walking back into the squad room and everyone is staring at her 
And they got her bodega flowers and like a grocery store balloon. I wanted more. I feel like you guys could have done better. <laughs> yeah, but they don't have taste. You know, they're cops. Yeah, but like a florist, it feels like one of them was like, uh, quick, go on the corner while you're getting your coffee and grab her a cup of like wilting carnations. Like, but, you know. No, but I think now maybe they're smart. What season is? No, I, this is 15. Yeah, it's weird that they didn't have a florist in town. <laughs> down the block like people are getting shot at all the time aren't they sending flowers often yeah (laughs) or is everyone constantly her i don't know they do seem clueless here i also was very moved when she was like he's not taking my job away because i feel that happens sometimes like um that it's like an easy solution of of something bad's happening it's like why don't you just quit your job or like don't go online well, like literally, it's kind of what just happened on the current season of SVU with Kat. Like I, they had her character do something that I mean, we can talk about it more in depth another time. But like they had Kat be like, I don't think I can handle SVU anymore after she gets shot. And it's like, what? That's not your character at all. Your character is the kind of person that would be completely like nothing's going to take this away from me, you know, and she instead is like, this is maybe too much for me. I'm going to go do something else. And because she gets shot. So you're right. It does happen. I think these are two different things. Well, what are you saying? Because she made that decision. I just feel I was reminded like someone was talking about being harassed online all the time. And someone was like, just get off the Internet. And it's like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? I can't be online because of that. Or it's like, I can't go to my job because this motherfucker. It's like, uh, that's not an actual solution. Right. That's why. That, yeah. And I'm saying with the cat thing that they made that the solution. And I don't think that that was the right move. But she made her own solution. I mean, the writers, but like in she made her own. It wasn't like Benson going, I don't know. You should probably get out of here. <laughs> You're right. She just had this girlfriend. She was like, fuck this. I don't want to get shot at. I just want to kind of like solve chiller crimes. That doesn't seem very cat-like to me, but <laughs> I, I understand a person saying no, that. No, you're right. It didn't seem like her. She wanted to <laughs> save people. She did. Yeah. Anyway, back in the squad room, like, uh, Olivia's like, what, no cake? Like, trying to make a joke. And Rollins is like, uh, we're going to get you cupcakes. Uh, and it's like, it's just very awkward. Like, no one knows how to talk to her because she's like, they're big, strong Benson who's had this horrific thing happen to her. And I think no one knows how to, like, look at her or deal with her. So Cragen's like, welcome back, Detective Benson. And we're off. Um, and now we're in Times Square and there's a big purple mascot named Momo uh, who's invented. It's like a guy in a costume the way that at Times Square, it's usually like fucking Cookie Monster or a minion or whatever. And um, this just reminded me of the Momo challenge. Do you remember this, Lisa, where there was like people thought that there's this like creepy drawing called Momo. And they were like, if your kid sees Momo on the Internet, they'll kill themselves. It was like a full hoax on the internet, but like adults were believing it. They were like, don't look at Momo videos. And it's like, it wasn't real. <laughs> she is scary though. Yeah. The drawing of it is very creepy pasta. It's very, uh, slender man adjacent yeah. creepy. Yeah, for sure. Um, but alas, it's not making people do anything to themselves. So this little kid named buddy runs away from his dad and goes running towards Momo. He's like, Momo. And the dad's like, buddy, come back here. And he's hugging Momo and he's so happy to see him. And he like, won't let go of him. And then the dad runs up to get buddy. And Momo's like trying to sell him on a picture, like one pick for $10, $5 for the kid, like whatever. And the guy pushes Momo, the dad. And there's like a whole scuffle starting and a cop runs up to break it up. And where's dad? The dad has disappeared. And buddy's like, pa, pa. But like the dad has fully taken off. 
And the dad had gross vibes, very aggressive uh, baseball cat. I, you know, I don't like, I don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, the, don't push a mascot for no reason. Like it was, <laughs> um, and then I assume that's where the credits would go, but this is a two-parter, so they don't give us two credits. So then um, at the squad room, Liv is sitting across from Amaro and she's kind of like twirling her hair in her fingers. And we have seen earlier in a flashback that she cut off all her hair after the William Lewis thing. So she's got a very short, not like back in her sort of like pixie cut days, but it's like a long bob kind of. It's shorter. It's very season five, Carrie Bradshaw, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. But she has it short. It's just right to her chin basically. And um, she's just like twirling her hair and Mamaro's looking at her. And this isn't like a new me, new look situation. Like she definitely cut her hair in a traumatic way. And Amaro's staring at her and she's like, you don't like my new haircut. And then they're, he's like, sorry. Like, it's more of the whole, we don't know how to deal with Olivia. Kind I of know, thing. but he goes, it'll grow back. And it's like, you say you like the haircut. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you, bro? And then she goes, you're not wearing your ring. And it's like, well, now we know why you don't even know how to compliment a woman, you dumbass. So uh, that divorce was obviously a long time coming. I don't think we ever saw like one moment of happiness with tomorrow <laughs> and his wife. No. And, uh, then Cragen kind of interrupts their conversation to come out and be like, we got a lost kid in, in uh, Times Square. And Benson's like, they're being all apprehensive about letting Benson get out into the work for uh, like into the field. And she's like, let me take it. It's a lost kid in Times Square. How bad could this be? <laughs> Famous last word. Uh, so they get there to Times Square. This kid won't talk. Amaro's uh, talking to the guy who's inside of Momo. And uh, this actually, this guy playing Momo is a very famous puppeteer named Rick Lyon. And he not only used to help operate uh, Big Bird on Sesame Street, another Sesame Street crossover, because I know our audience got mad at us because we didn't recognize one guy from crossover uh, from Sesame Street in Signature. So we are letting you know Listen, all the Sesame Street people. Know. I was a Barney and a Lamb Chop girl. Sesame Street and Arthur. Like Sesame Street just didn't connect to me i don't know sorry guys <laughs> i watched it a little bit but i think for a while when i was a kid i thought real life stuff wasn't good like i only liked wanted to watch cartoons so uh sesame street's not i do love it but it's not like a super super important thing for me but what is super important to me is that this man rick lyon also designed and created all of the puppets from avenue q which is a musical that i am obsessed with I know all the music. I've seen it on, I've saw it off Broadway. And then I think I saw it on Broadway. I like love, love, love Avenue Q. And this guy basically created it. How so, did you know? Did you know to look him up or were you like, who's this idiot in the Momo? Or you, you recognized him? I was like, who is that? Like, is, I first wanted to know if Momo was real. So I Googled if Momo was like a real character that maybe I had just had a blind spot. And then when you look it up, you see the guy playing him is Rick Lyon, who has all these credits and is like a famous puppeteer. Yeah, I got to see Avenue Q. I know it's the hip one, right? It's hip. I want to see it. I mean, it was. I saw it over 10 years ago. So like, it's definitely, definitely been out for a while. But <laughs> it, it, puppets have sex in it. And it's funny. Like, yeah. it's very funny. And there's like a song called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Like, there's just like, it's very irreverent, very funny. And um, I just, it's you amazing, mean, this guy. You mean hip? Hip? Yeah, it's hip. It's a hip I don't know show. if it's hip, if it's 15 years old. Like, Book of Mormon's still hip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say Avenue Q is pretty hip. 
<laughs> and uh, he's talking to the cop, this guy, anyway. He's got his Momo hat off and he's talking to the guy and he's like, this kid's being really weird. He was like clinging to me like I'm weird, like like I was real. And I'm like, I don't think that that's that weird. I feel like a lot of kids see- think that they're seeing Elmo in Times Square when they see him. But I think maybe for the kid's age, because he's like seven or eight, they're like, what's going on? Uh, Olivia goes and works her kid magic and fully gets Buddy to start talking. Like, there's always a kid that they're like, he doesn't talk. And then Olivia's like, hi. And the kid's like, hi, my name's Buddy. I'm eight years old. Like she just really gets kids to start blabbing. So now the detectives are back at the precinct going over everything with daddy Cragen. We're finding out the kid is underweight, but otherwise he's fine. There's no missing person report. His DNA is not in the system, but they're like, but he's seven or eight. He should be able to tell us something. So now we're back to a getting him to talk through drawing and he draws his family. He draws three people and it's ma sissy and auntie. Okay. And then she's like, well, who's this? And he gets scared talking about Pa. And he's like, Pa lives with us at house sometimes, but he goes sometimes. And he starts, he's talking in very clipped language. Like he's like, don't ask, be quiet. Then he won't be mad. If you're quiet, you get ice cream or you get to go out. And um, he tells him about counting and counting all the cracks and counting all the train stops. And so basically Olivia gets like a little light bulb moment where she's like, I bet we could count exactly to where this kid came from. So we're now at Greenpoint at the Pulaski bridge. I know it. Well, I've walked that bridge. I've walked the bridge. I rode the bridge. I biked the bridge. The bridge. I've driven across that bridge a thousand times. I've walked there from the Creek in the cave. I've (laughs) definitely walked that bridge many a time. Um, and he is pointing out all the stuff he remembers. I don't know if this is real. It seems like TV magic to me. I don't think that many kids would be like that place. And then it's a hundred cracks from this place to this place. But somehow via counting cracks and counting train stops and recognizing the bridge, we finally get to this kid and he goes, that's house. So he he brings them essentially back to his house. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, A neighbor guy pops out and he's like, you guys looking for Tony? And the house is, we find out, owned by Angie Minetti. Tony Minetti is her son. They break into the house. Like, no one, they don't see anybody. No one's around. They go down to the basement. They find a bunch of cells. One cell has a little Momo doll in it. There are buckets. Like, it's a full horror show. Like, people are being kept in this in this area. And then they see that there's a woman in one of these cells. And she's chained up, and she looks terrified. So they get this woman out of the house. Rollins is like fully house of horrors. There's tasers, there's zip tie restraints, there's German shepherds in the yard. Like this is not a fun place to be. And Barba is on the scene. I don't know. I I think we've asked this before. I don't know how often DAs, ADAs come to the scene, but Barba is on the scene here. And he does say it's another Ariel Castro. Oh my God. So spoiler alert. That is what the crime that this is based on. Um, so basically no one has seen Angie Minetti, the owner of the house in years, but her social security checks are still getting cashed. Uh, there have been three complaints, including one of a woman tied up in a doghouse outside. The cop showed up. There was no answer. So they left and everyone's like appalled by that. Further proof that SVU is a cab. So the neighbor is like, I never saw anything sketchy. It's like, you didn't see the doghouse situation. Okay. Um, Buddy IDs a photo of Auntie, the woman that they find in the cage downstairs. And he's like, can I see Sissy? And then Olivia is like in the car with him trying to get him to talk. And when she looks outside, she sees all this press and like people helping the woman get into the car. And it gives her flashbacks of her whole William Lewis situation. We're getting flashbacks throughout the whole episode. Some worse than others. We'll get to it. 
she's like very pissed the press is there, uh, but she's also fully exhibiting the effects of her trauma. Like this is not really the way Olivia usually talks. She's just like the feeding frenzy's already begun. Like she's so, so pissed. So, you know, I think Olivia is just also going through, going through something. So at the precinct, we find out that they've searched Tony Minetti's apartment, but there's no sign of Ma or Sissy. They identified the woman that they found in the basement as Rhonda Davis, 24, missing since 02. So she's been missing for nine or 10 years, at least. She has diminished mental capacity, so she's not able to give them a ton of information. They bring in this guy, Tony Minetti, but we've already seen what the guy looked like a little bit at the beginning of the episode. This is not the guy. He's obviously not the man we saw in Times Square. And he's like, I don't even like women. I'm gay. This is why I haven't talked to my mom in years. Like, I don't want that house. I have nothing to do with that house. Like, so clearly there's a uh, mistaken identity situation going on here. Rollins is like slowly trying to pull more info out of Rhonda, who's obviously incredibly traumatized. So she says that Pa sleeps with all of them, but that he left with Sissy and Ma and didn't want her to go. She says Pa calls Sissy pumpkin pie and called her our Thanksgiving blessing. So this kind of is like a light bulb that this woman came to them around Thanksgiving time. So they're looking for somebody who would have gone missing around Thanksgiving time. And that leads them to Kayla Grayland, who went missing in the Poconos nine years ago around Thanksgiving. And Buddy has ID'd an age progression photo of like what Sissy would look like. So they go to see Kayla's parents. They show a police sketch and of the man who was in Times Square. And the parents are ecstatic. They've never seen the man before, but they're ecstatic to find out that Kayla might still be alive. The cops never took DNA for, of her, like anything from her hairbrush or a toothbrush or anything like that. So that was kind of a mistake. But the mom has Kayla's first tooth for DNA. And that made me start thinking about when Rosie's going to lose teeth. And I'm not excited to be collecting teeth. But anyway, you don't have to collect them. Aren't you supposed to like keep them in a little box? Or not something? in my culture. That's disgusting. Okay. <laughs> no, people that keep teeth, it's weird. I don't know. OK, so just take her little tooth. Put a fiver under the no foot, put a dollar under the pillow and throw it in the garbage. I mean, if you want to keep a tooth, I'm not. Um, no, I don't telling you not to, tooth. but it doesn't seem like you want to. And you do not have to. There's <laughs> <Okay>. no <laughs> rule. But you don't even have to tell her about the tooth fair if you don't want to. I mean, it's all a fucking it's a scam. Yeah, everything's made up, but I think I'll do the tooth fairy. It sounds it, it, it was sounds really magical to wake up yeah. with money under your pillow. That was really fun. No, it's really, really fun. And presents are always um, a good time. But ew, to keep a bunch of teeth is not. I just have seen a lot of people do that. I've definitely yeah, seen. I found boxes of teeth. It might be my mom too. have did it. I'll ask her. Anyway, meanwhile, CSU has found skeletal remains in the backyard of the Menity house wrapped in a blanket. So not great. Liv is still having flashbacks. She's she's just getting really dark, like describing all the details of the case. She's like, and this guy keeps these women slaves. Like she's just getting more heightened and heightened in her anger. And then she's like, you have to stop treating me like I'm broken. And it's like, but you seem not broken, but like you could use a maybe a couple weeks in Hawaii or something. But the thing is, this does suck. <laughs> like, yeah. this is the normal reaction to a case like this. Like, this is fucked up. Right. But I think when this case transitioned from a missing kid to a full Ariel Castro situation, <laughs> they might have moved Liv to like yeah. just be like a different thing. Like, because it's uh, one of the worst cases that we've like ever heard of in our lives. And like, she's like, first case back on the job, like human <laughs> atrocities beyond all others. Like, it's kind of tough. Um, but 
Ice-T comes in, and there's good news. They found Kayla. She was picked up by New Jersey police uh, shoplifting at a Kmart. So clearly she was just dumped somewhere and, I don't know, maybe probably wanted to get caught or needed, needed food and went to Kmart to shoplift. So on TV, Kayla talks to the press. Um, she's played by an actress named Agatha Nowicki, and she... Um, Kayla has been missing for nine years and she's like, I just want to see my parents and see buddy. The news report has her name underneath and the font is comic book font. It just, it's just something I noticed and it was really weird. Like it's full Superman comic book font at the bottom. And I don't think most news channels are using that. Anyway, we go to commercial on, um, Liv's face looking like kind of pissed and, uh, yeah, that's kind of her vibe the whole episode. But at the hospital, uh, Kayla's like, everybody's being so nice. She's surrounded by flowers. Her parents are there with her. It's like, thank God she's safe. And uh, she just wants to go home. But the cops are like, girl, we need a little bit more info from you. This isn't like a head straight home kind of situation. As, and so Barbara like lures the parents out of the room so that they can talk to uh, Kayla a little bit more easily. And she says uh, when she was walking home from watching TV at a friend's house, she was walking home and these Ma and Pa pulled over. Ma asked her for directions and she felt a jolt and Olivia's like, they tasered you. And when she woke up, she was chained to the wall and they were like, we're your new family, Ma and Pa. And um, after about a week, Pa unchained her and started raping her. And she didn't even know that it was called sex until Ma explained it to her and told her that she was lucky to be Pa's favorite. So this is beyond fucked up. She's 10 years old when she is originally captured. So very, very horrific. Um, Ma was never locked up, she reveals. She went upstairs and she said sometimes Pa would go away and Sissy would ask her to let her, like, let them go. And she's like, I can't because Pa's coming back. Pretty fucked up. And then the next thing we know, uh, we're in Pennsylvania where Amaro is there to collect Ma, who's been apparently sitting at a McDonald's for five hours. So this man has just been ditching these women one by one. He left one at home. He dropped one off in New Jersey or he didn't, he didn't drop her off. She escaped in New Jersey, I think. And then he drops off Ma in Pennsylvania. She has no cash. He just left her there. Do you think this would have happened if the Momo incident didn't happen? Like he was escaping the cops, but like, no, he wouldn't. I think he would have kept living how he was living. Yeah. Okay. I think that he knew, oh shit, the cops are going to get in my face. I can't deal with the cops and then leaving. But it's like, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know, but it seems like it was kind of crazy to abandon buddy. He should have just talked to the cops and been like, sorry, I didn't mean to push the guy. And then like the cops are dumb. They would have never investigated it further and found your fucking full harem of prisoner slaves in your basement. Uh, Ma was like very uh, adamant about staying at the McDonald's because she thinks that Pa's coming back for her. And she's like real country. She's like, Pa's going to come back for me. Like she's got a real accent. And um, they bring her in and everyone's like, we got to charge her. We got to do this. And Rollins is really fighting for her. And is like, she has classic Stockholm syndrome. Like this is a victim as well. Like, and they're like, well, we got to talk to her because she's the only way we can find out where Pa is. So they're like, well, who do you want to talk to her? The men that arrested her and cuffed her or the women? So obviously... Cragen makes a call, lets Rollins and Benson go in to talk to her. They quickly devolve into a good cop, bad cop situation, but Liv is losing it. Like she's not doing her normal Olivia Benson, like compassionate speaking to people. Like she's fully freaking out on this woman. And obviously this is all a result of the ongoing trauma that she is suffering from. 
Ma is like freaking out from the way that Olivia is talking to her and they have to pull Olivia out of the room. Cragen sends her home and is like, it was too soon for you to come back. I can't say I disagree. The next scene is just flashbacks of Benson beating Lewis with a bat, like really, really fucked up flashback of like, it's just very graphic. You like hear a body being slammed with a bat over and over. And then she comes to, she's in a hospital elevator um, and she's like letting everybody go out of the hospital, out of the elevator. And she's just like sitting there frozen and she's going to see Kayla, Rhonda and buddy. They're all kind of in this like child development room, like hanging out Rhonda and buddy are, and Kayla's outside the glass talking to Benson. And this is a very mirrored scene from earlier with Benson. Kayla says she's tired of everyone looking at her. Like she's going to break. And Benson's like, girl, I feel you, you know, uh, buddy wants to see ma and Kayla's like, it's fine with me. If, if he wants to see her, I don't want to take anything away from anybody. And I just feel like this actress is very good. Like I'm really like, she's really drawing me into this victim personality. This character is just like, she's really, really, you feel for her. Meanwhile, Olivia meets Amaro in a back alley and she's like, I've got something to trade for, uh, for with Ma, like I've got an idea. And so Liv shows up to, you know, the precinct. Cragen's annoyed because, uh, because no one's listening to daddy. <laughs> yeah. No one's listening to him, but Olivia's like, want me to quit bitch? And he's like, okay, well, I don't want that. So they do let Olivia go in and talk to Ma again. And she's got, now she's back to regular Benson. Now she's back to soft-spoken, let's work this out, let me coax the information out of you the way that only Olivia Benson knows how. And she basically shows Ma a picture that Buddy drew for her and starts to tug on her heartstrings from the whole Buddy angle. And she's like, he misses you. Sissy says you can see him if you want. You can still be a family. You just have to talk to us. And she, and it's like, you tell us who Pa is and she won't say. And she's like, well, tell us who you are. Like, what did they used to call you? And she's like, I just can't say it. Olivia's done this trick before. She's like, if you can't say it, how about you write it down? <laughs> you know? So in the next scene, we find out her name is April Hendricks and she went missing 18 years ago in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I don't know how she became Southern. Maybe that was something that happened when she was in the basement of this house. Cause she's fully like, but there's Paul. And like, she's from Brooklyn. So she went missing about 18 years ago in Greenpoint. Police questioned a few people. One of the people they questioned was Michael Williams, who was a maintenance worker at her school. The school has since shut down, but they somehow get in contact with another teacher from the school who remembers exactly (laughs) April and is like, oh, you want to hear something great? He works at this school now, Michael Williams. So let me get you his (laughs) phone number. So I love when the writers are like, we got to move this along and we just get to who Michael Williams is, where he is. They track him down. And a Croatian woman opens the door and she is from Orange is the New Black. She played Healy's wife that hated him. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's her. I always liked her on Orange is the New Black. She was really funny. That's a funny um, typecast to be just mail orders. Like, yeah, she, she's yeah been mail order bride more than once. <laughs> and uh, she answers the door and she's like, yeah, Michael Williams is my husband. He's in the back playing with our sons. And they go back and he's just like weirdly roughhousing with his sons in a way that seems like they staged it, but they arrest him immediately. And now we're cross cutting between him being interrogated and his wife being interrogated. He is creepily delusional. Like he's like slaves. I was the slave. I fed these women. I clothed them. I took care of their needs. It's like, they were fine. They were what? Nobody. Oh, it's just, it's really delusional. Um, Rollins is, 
convincing the wife about what he did. And she's like, no, you don't understand. He was at this house taking care of his mother. And the wife's name is Dagmara, by the way. That's her name. They don't really ever say it, but it, she, it is listed in the credits. And I think it's kind of a fun name. That sounds like a meat that you would order. <laughs> A Dagmara sandwich. Yeah. Um, so Michael is like insisting that he saved these girls, which like, I guess I could sort of see. We find out that Ma actually had a, her mother had an abusive boyfriend that she was trying to get away from. So that's why kind of nobody looked for her because they assumed that she was just running away from her home situation. And then Rhonda was a drug addict that was like in and out of foster care. So I guess you could see like these two, how he in his mind was like, I'm saving them. I'm giving them a better life in a cage. It's psychotic. But with Kayla, it's like she was walking home from school. She had parents. She was fine. You just picked her up off the street and ruined her life. Like, I mean, she ruined all their lives. I'm just saying. I don't know where he gets his justification for Kayla. And when they ask him about it, he says, oh, yeah, Kayla was different. Sissy helped him. So after he took her, he didn't need any others. So he admits that she was a different case. But I think it was just like he saw her and wanted to possess her. So that's what he did. The uh, the wife is still going on about how his mom isn't dead. She has Alzheimer's and she goes he goes away to help her with her Alzheimer's. And it's like she's just not getting that her husband is going away to basically have a secret family that are that are captives. And he denies killing Angie and said he just walked in one day and she was dead. And I'm also wondering if this mail order woman is like actually likes him or if she's like, yeah, go to Manhattan, like go into Greenpoint. I don't care. Well, she's pretty like she's pretty insistent that he's a great man. She keeps like she's not just like she's not just like, look, he helped me. I'm in this country because of him. She's like, he's great. He's such a great dad. We live in the Poconos because he wants to keep our son safe. Like she totally I think she's drank the Kool-Aid somehow that he's a good guy. But it also could be that. Life was bad where she, she came looks from. like Buffalo Bill. I, I mean, know. there is. Like, yeah, he, he looks scary <laughs> fully. I know. But I don't know if you watch 90 Day Fiance. I think a lot of these girls are getting with scary guys so they can get out of where they came from. But uh, like I said, he denies killing Angie. He says she was just dead one day. And they're like, so you just buried her in the backyard and he was and cashed her checks. And he was like, eh. he kind of doesn't really have answers for a lot of this. And he was like, well, what did you think was going to happen to Rhonda when you bolted with the two other women and just left her chained up in a cage? And he's like, can't save them all. Like, he's truly evil, this man. And uh, he thinks he saved them. He's like, they're alive because of me. I gave Kayla a son. He's my boy. And it's like, it's just really, I mean, you'll tell us what the real case, but I don't think you ever really get a good sense of like why anyone does these kind of things. But it's just, it's so sick. Barba is considering charging April, a.k.a. Ma, and they're like, she was literally kidnapped at 12 years old and has been held by this man like for 18 years. Like she's scared to death and she's a shell of a person. Like, how could you even consider that? So Barba kind of backs off <laughs> and Amaro's like when they're they leave the interrogation room with Michael Williams. Amaro's like, think he'll kill himself. And Finn's like, who gives a fuck? Like, it's just a very funny little quick interaction between those two. And then the whole episode's winding down. Like now we're at uh, Kayla's parents' house and she's in the car with Olivia and Buddy and Buddy's asleep and they can't get out of the car just yet because the press is like swarming around them and they're waiting to kind of like move them. And they have this really sweet scene that's like a heart to heart. And she's like, are we ever going to be normal? Is Buddy going to be okay? Like he doesn't even have a name. Like, um, and 
Olivia says, like, I think people who have gone through unfair, horrific experiences is that they have this will. And when they get support and they get a chance, they can not only survive, they can thrive. And that's like a callback to when she talked about how she wasn't thriving earlier in the episode, I think. And then Kayla's like, thank you, Olivia Benson. You are the patron saint of all that is good in the world. And she gets out of the car with Buddy. And in the final scene of the episode, Olivia has agreed to go back to therapy. And when the doctor asks her, how have you been? She goes, better. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. Whew. Okay. Wow. It's like, it's, I, it's such a fucked up episode, but I know that the true crime I'm, I've heard so much about it and it's so fucked, even more fucked up. So I'm, um, you got a big task ahead of you, Lisa. And I know you're going to kill it. I do. And I think you'll be shocked at like these mental narcissist guys. Yeah. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, welcome back to the news. So uh, this is happening in Cleveland, um, in like the Tremont area. And I've stayed a mile away from where this took place. <gasps> you have? Yeah, my friend used to live in the neighborhood with this girl. She had well, one of my old dog best friends, Rebel. There were chickens in the back. And I stayed there. I mean, he got to live in a house for $200. So this is... um uh, I guess it's an affordable place to be, but I just can't believe I was there. I stayed in a hostel in this area, uh, partied all night. So it is kind of, it's extra creepy. So the, you know, the bad guy, we all know Ariel Castro, he's 52. And I guess for weeks I have been calling him Abel. So that might happen. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and you know, at the time of his apprehension, he was unemployed. Um, and the house he kept the woman captive in was in foreclosure. So focus on your life. You don't need any extra people in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you don't have your shit together, bro. Um, so that was annoying. But he was a school bus driver for two decades, which is chilling that you can be this evil and ride around with children all day waiting for your yeah. next victim. Um, and he but he was fired for having three disciplinary problems. <laughs> and so he um, is a loser. Um, he had a first wife who had full custody of the kids, uh, but she, and he, but he was frequently known for abducting the kids and keeping them away from their mother. Oh so gosh. he was doing shady shit that he shouldn't have gotten away with. And while they were together, there was some domestic violence in the home. She suffered a broken nose, ribs and two dislocated shoulders. Um, so the signs were there that maybe he shouldn't be in public and maybe should be surveillance at all times. Like, what the fuck? Um, and he was a gross person, nasty, dirty. And that's that. I hate him. <laughs> His cousin said that he built himself a shack in the living room and slept inside of it to save money on heat. Wow. That's the thing. It's like, how can someone so dumb and careless get away with a crime for over a decade? Like, that's what's confusing to me, because we kind of build up these serial killer or like these 
these evil people as geniuses and meticulous and like Dexter style. And they're this guy's a fucking loser. You know, he's not like all those Virgo serial killers. They're organized. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But to me, it's like you schlub piece of shit. Yeah. Um, So the three victims of Ariel Castro um, is Amanda Berry, and she was held for 10 years. So then it's Gina De Jesus, um, and she was held for nine years. And Michelle Knight, and she was held for 11 years. All three of these women were acquaintances of Castro's children. And that's how he was able to kind of have their trust because they were friends with his daughter, you know, his daughter. So Michelle was just 21 years old and she was lured into the house with the offer of a puppy for her young son. Basically, she was like on her way to a custody hearing for her son. There was problems in her own life. She's kind of like um, the one that they thought was just a runaway at the, in the SVU episode. Like there was less care for her. This woman got less press when she went missing. Um, she had it rough. She was abused in the home, but she was trying to get to court for a custody hearing for her son and she missed it. And it was just kind of this wild thing. Um, and he saw her there and she was asking for directions outside of a family dollar. So he offered her a ride and she said yes, because she knew his daughter and, he, and she was like, yeah. And he goes, you know, I have this puppy. Maybe your son would like a puppy so she goes yeah I'll, ch- I'll check out this puppy so once inside the home he tied her with an extension cord dragged her to the basement he forced a motorcycle helmet over her head and oh. then raped her jesus and this motorcycle helmet is like kind of a running th- theme it's he raped the women in this helmet often he also snapped the neck of the puppy he used to lure her in front of her well, this man can't afford to feed a puppy, I'm sure. No, it it's th- like it's sadistic. That's the thing. It's like this Ugh. loser and he's sadistic and this shit um, gets it's just very twisted. He also ripped up her only picture of her son, Joey, and said, you will never see him again. So it's just like, obviously he's bad, but he's like mean. I just it's a lot. So during her imprisonment, her son was adopted out to another family. And just so you guys know, as of 2018, um, like she doesn't have direct contact with him, but she gets sent pictures and hopes to meet one day. So oh, that's so heartbreaking. I need her to meet him. Yeah. But the son, um, you know, got adopted to a nice family. So eight months later, in April 2003, he abducted Amanda Berry, and she was 16 years old. She was last seen um, leaving her job at the local Burger King on April 21st. And she later in an interview for 2020 said how she wanted to call off that day because her birthday was the next day. Um, and so she constantly thinks, like, what if I just didn't go to work that day? Why, you know, and it's... You, what ifs? So he offered her a ride to his house to meet up with his daughter, who she knew. And she was like, OK, yeah. So he took Barry upstairs and showed her this mystery woman sleeping in a bedroom in front of a TV set. And that woman ended up being Michelle Knight. He took her to a closet off of one of the rooms and told her to take her pants off. And she remembers like she was like, oh, fuck, this is not going to be good. Um, And he took her to the basement, taped her wrists and ankles, put a belt around her ankles over the tape, put a helmet over her head and said, don't make any noise and I'll take you home. Uh, But then he obviously did not do that. He chained her to a pole in the basement, shut the lights off and left the TV on. One week after her abduction, he used her cell phone to call her family and taunt them. 
The FBI had just started to develop technology that could track a cell phone's location if it was turned on. And so they were able to narrow down the area to a 30 or 40 block um, surface area or whatever perimeter. Um, But he never used the phone again and he couldn't get on. And so they couldn't get info. So you know how like those old 90s thrillers we make fun of like, keep them on the line. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They just didn't have the technology and he taunted them once and never turned it on again. And this is just kind of like, you know, when men are like, but I have daughters. And it's like, yeah, that means nothing. You could still be a terrible person. And Ariel (laughs) Castro is the example of that. Like he not only had a daughter, but used having a daughter to lure women in that he then kept hostage. So just um, that's why it's so extra annoying when guys are like, but I have a wife and sisters. It's like none of that matters. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. So Gina De Jesus was 14 at the time of the kidnapping, and he enticed her into his car in 2004 by asking her for help in finding his daughter, who was a friend of Gina's. He was like, hey, I can't find my daughter. She's been like running around. Can you help me find her? And he was like, she was like, of course. And this is a little aside, a little uplifting moment. But I pulled a prank like this because I used to be a party animal. So my friend Z picked up my friend Gary and I hid in the backseat under all these blankets. And she was like. We got into a fight. She ran off, but she's wasted. You have to. And they were like talking about trying to find me. And then I put my hand up in the side and like grabbed his face. And I was like um, a ghost and scared him. So that was just (laughs) a fun prank. Um, And he was like, unfortunately, this was not a prank. No, (laughs) no. Um, But um, I liked scaring my friend. Okay, so back to the house of horrors. So he took her to the house and he asked for help with the stereo. Um, He's like, hey, can you help me like uh, bring the stereo inside the house I bought for my daughter? Later in an interview, Gina said that she was unnerved by his bizarre behavior. Like he was fixing his eyebrows and trimming his mustache, cutting nose hairs. So he started to touch her and she's like, what are you doing, bro? You can go to jail. Like, you shouldn't be touching me. I'm underage. Because she's 14. Yes. And so he goes, "Ugh, fine, party pooper. I will take you home. But unfortunately, we can't leave through the door we came in through. And so he led her to the basement. And that's where he grabbed her and chained her up. So the chains weren't tight and she was able to throw them over and tried to run, but he sat on her back and she fought and fought, but couldn't get away. And the radio was too loud for anybody to hear her. And um, that was that. And she said that he would take her hair and put it in his mouth. And it was really gross. Oh, God. Yeah. So that's a detail. I guess I didn't have to add, but we should know what these women went through. Yeah. So since uh, she was new, she did become his favorite. We saw that in the SVU episode about favoritism. And so she seemed to have the nicer room and he was just kind of nicer to her. And that caused issues with the other girls and they would feel jealous because everyone had so little. And what's fucked up on top of all of this is they were all held less than five miles from the neighborhood on Lorraine Avenue, where all three of them disappeared. Oh, my God. So truly within. Um, He would go to the vigils on the anniversary of the women's disappearances. And nobody was like, hey, this dirty, nasty man who lives in a shack in the middle of his living room for heat could be the guy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 
the town of Cleveland and the neighbor, like everyone is very disappointed in the police in this. And there was just there was a giant 54 page investigation into the Cleveland Police Department because this was um, around the same time or close to with like Tamir Rice. And there was another incident and the police there were fucking up a lot. But um, definitely the citizens of Cleveland thought that the police should have, could have and like what what do you mean you couldn't find them they were within five miles of the where they were taken like was there no cctv footage outside of burger kings like what the fuck happened that there was yeah. no evidence or what do all three of the victims have in common they all know this this daughter they yeah. all know ariel castro's daughter yeah i don't think they and then you know especially with michelle like they were like whatever she's a runaway we don't care um and we, yeah, the police were terrible in it. I did not read the full report, but there was like a full investigation done to the police departments. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, yeah, so there was like a full investigation and report done on these um, failed police officers, which I'm sure are all working and feel nothing. So yeah, he went to these vigils. He brought home the missing posters and showed the women television coverage of their grieving families. So fucked up. Knight's case, like I said, got the least amount of attention. She was estranged for for her family and she really didn't get much screen time in searching. And this is kind of a theme that we've all kind of been thrust upon us in the past few months in the news of like who gets attention and who doesn't on cases. Now in the home, he sealed all the windows with closet doors and heavy drapes. Uh, There was a system of alarms attached to the interior of the front door. He fed them a single meal a day and forced them to use plastic toilets in their room. Um, And then to mark the passage of time, he would serve cake for each woman's abduction day. Like it was their birthday. Oh my God. Yeah, he kept them in a state of powerlessness through prolonged physical, sexual, and psychological violence. Um, He would sometimes pretend to leave the house and then sneak back in to make sure they were all still there. So they never knew when he was actually around or not to any of the people that ever say, like, why didn't you just leave? Um, Just more examples of, like, how much these people went through. He said if he ever caught them trying to leave or get out, he would obviously kill them. Um, And at first he kept the women like very divided and didn't permit them to talk. And for punishment, he would confine them in the cold basement or the sweltering attic. And then for rewards, these are rewards they got was a trip to the toilet and an occasional shower. Oh, my God. Um, But every reward came with a price. So if you had like if you got a shower, you had to shower with him. Uh, Barry said that she had to numb herself to cope with the sexual abuse and that you just like put your mind somewhere else um, so that you're not there. So that was just a comment. Uh, Barry used a code to record how many times he raped her each day in her diary um, in hopes that one day it could be used as evidence and he could uh, be in trouble for each count. Um, He used 92 pounds of locks and chains to restrain the women. As their years as prisoners, the women only left the house twice, and it was only for a brief visits to the adjacent garage. So the garage is as far as they went in their lives for a decade, give or take. Um, the women were changed in the basement, but then eventually were freed from the chains and were allowed to live upstairs on the second floor. This is vi- so Amanda Berry would watch the Montel Williams show. And there, do you remember the psychic Sylvia Brown? Uh, yeah, it sounds familiar. 
So, so she's watching Montel. She always thought about, you know, the psychic and hopefully whatever. One day her mother was on the Montel Williams show to ask about her daughter. And this fucking psychic told her that the daughter was dead. Oh my God. So she broke down crying and couldn't believe that the psychic did that. So she had to like watch her mom cry on Montel thinking she was dead when she was fully alive watching this in chains. That's terrible. It's like more, that's the thing, like very no, maybe I don't know what the statement is, but it just sucks when the real case is even more twisted than the SVU episode mm-hmm. because that's fiction and there's writers and they're trying to be um, really, you know, cinematic about it. And so then for these like little moments that are also um, bizarre to happen, it's it's a lot. And sad, of course, her mother died before she was freed and was never able to see her daughter free. So, um. Yeah, her mom died of heart failure three years after Barry disappeared. Now, he would impregnate Michelle Knight multiple times, and then he would starve her and punch her in the stomach repeatedly until she miscarried. (gasps) So constantly would do that to her. But Amanda Barry was able to keep her baby. She found out she was pregnant on her 20th birthday. And so she had a baby, but he would beat the shit out of Michelle and force her to miscarry. So I don't know what what the fuck. Amanda said she was very terrified. Um, you know, like I barely eat. I'm chained to a wall. I use a bucket for a bathroom. What the fuck am I going to do? Amanda Barry delivered a baby in the house in a plastic pool. And then Michelle Knight was the midwife for it. And um, he basically like it's weird. Like It's like Michelle Knight could, was not allowed like forced miscarriage. And this is forced birth. And it's like, which one is worse? They're both like so bad. And um What's wild is all the neighbors for were like, he's a regular Joe. We chatted. We waved hello. Like no one really got these vibes from him, even though I, I mean, yeah, no one got the vibes from him. And he's yeah, they put that this. in the episode, too, because there's this guy that's kind of like, no, I never saw anything sketchy. Like he seemed cool. We said, hey, like, you know. Yeah. And Michelle said that Ariel told her if the baby dies, I'll kill you. Um, So Jocelyn was born on Christmas 2006. So Gina said having a child there was actually a great distraction for them and they all had something to do. So that was kind of nice. Um, Castro instructed them to tell Jocelyn that all the chains were bracelets. And then by the time she was three, like all the chains kind of came off. Uh, but the child was never told the names of the other women. Um, So like the kid wouldn't say their names in public on accident. Oh my God. And a cousin said that he would bring this child around and introduce him as his granddaughter. Introduce her. And nobody was like, oh, I never saw your daughter pregnant. Like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? I just don't. This seems like such a failure of like community of like people knowing what's up with other people. But yeah, they said she looked happy and healthy and enjoyed her time with granddaddy. And she had clean clothes and seemed normal and alert and talked. Um, He was a different man around her. Um, And they did really love each other. And that made Amanda nervous for sure, because she was really scared he would touch her. Uh. But yeah. So now we're going to get into the escape. So Jocelyn went downstairs and didn't see Ariel and was like, I don't find daddy. Daddy is nowhere. So Amanda knew that this was her chance. Like this was her only chance. He's not there. So Amanda's like, if I'm going to do it, I have to do it now. It was the first time in 10 years that her bedroom door wasn't locked and he wasn't home. So the front door had alarms and the storm door was padlocked, but she was able to stick an arm out. And Barry said that someone passing by outside saw her, but did not intervene. 
So someone saw like someone screaming and crying for help, saying they've been kidnapped with an with an arm outside this clear locked storm door and just kept moving. So she was in the front by the front, you know, in the front door area with this young child and they're screaming, I need help. I need help. I've been kidnapped for 10 years. So this uh, hero is his name is Charles Ramsey and he got her out and his news interview went viral. It has close to 10 million views on YouTube. Um, And I think like, what's that TV show? Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, the unbreakable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like in the credits, there's a guy being like, "Load as hell" or whatever. And like, yeah, I yeah. think it's I, Mike Britt is the guy who does it on the show, and he's yes. basically playing this man. Yeah. Yes. So this is a really charismatic man, and in the interview, he says he couldn't believe it. He saw Ariel every single day. He ate ribs with him, played in the backyard with the dogs. If you are interested, there's a video from 2019 of Charles Ramsey and Amanda Berry being reunited. If you want to watch that. Um, And in the interview, he had a lot of um, great moments. He said, I knew something was really wrong because a pretty white woman was running into a strange black man's arms. He said, something is wrong here. Dead giveaway. (laughs) And the reporter's like trying not to laugh, but it's true. Like this white woman is running into this uh, man's arms. I lo- And he, he was he was like, yeah, I was just eating McDonald's and I heard this girl screaming. Um, so the two neighbors heard that they freed her by kicking in the chained front door and helped her make the 911 call. Uh, the dispatcher said, though, that the woman who called said, I'm Amanda Berry and I have been kidnapped for 10 years. Angel Cordero was one of the other men that helped Barry um, escape. And he said that her clothes were dirty, her teeth yellowed, her hair super messy, and the kid looked really nervous. Uh, Barry said that even with the cops all around and so many people, she was still terrified he would hurt her and still doesn't know why he left that day with the door unlocked. Um, But he did leave and he left the door unlocked and he went um, to go have a meal with his family. So I don't know if he was testing them or it was a mistake or if he was drunk or he I don't know what it was. And I wonder, like his family never came over for 10 years, like no one ever came into the house for 10 years and like saw the I don't know. It's like so nuts. Uh, Gina said it took her a while to get out because she didn't even believe the police were really there. She legit was thinking maybe it's people in costumes. This is what that damage can do to a person. Um, Gina said when she told the cops her name that their face completely dropped, like they saw a ghost. Um, And like I said, Cleveland's pissed that the detectives didn't do enough uh, work there. So he was charged initially with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape and bail was set at $8 million. Um, There were two other men arrested in connection to the case um, that were his brothers, Pedro and O'Neill, but nothing really came about with them. Thursday, August 1st, uh, three months after her rescue, Michelle Knight um, goes to confront her abductor in court, and she was the only one of the victims who made a statement. The other two victims had representatives from their family who read statements on their behalf. Amanda Berry's sister, Beth Serrano, asked for privacy so that like the six-year-old daughter Berry delivered in captivity would not learn about the circumstances of her birth in the news media. So they just needed some privacy. Beth said, listen, Amanda could not control a lot of things for a long time. Please let her control this. I'm sure that no one left her alone, but it's a very succinct, well-said sentence. Beth maybe was an English major. Michelle said that the days never got shorter. Days turned into nights. Nights turned into days that years turned into eternity. Um, And she got some shade in too. She said, you took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. 
She spoke about how her bonds with the other women was the only thing that gave her a sliver of hope. Castro had a statement too. The New York Times said that he they called his statement mostly rambling. He denied that he was violent or he had ever raped or beaten Michelle or the other women. He legit said, people are trying to portray me as a monster and I'm not a monster. I'm just sick. Fuck you. You hate women. Yeah. The prosecutor in the case, Timothy J. McGinty, um, said the experts did not find any indication that he is mentally ill and that he blames everyone, even the victims, and has no remorse. He claimed all the sex was consensual in that house and that there was like a harmony in their home. So Judge Russo responded to him with a sick burn and was like, I'm not sure there's anyone in America who will agree with you. None of these burns are actually that good, but I guess for the court of law, it's exciting. (laughs) He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and then plus 1,000 years. He pled guilty to 937 charges. At least he pled guilty so that the girls didn't have to go to court, you know? Um, I mean, he wasn't really thinking about them, but yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying he did a, a service. I'm just saying I'm glad it happened that way. Absolutely. Um, and the punishment was the result of a plea deal. So uh, Castro and the prosecutors made a deal that would allow him to avoid a possible death sentence if he pled guilty. Um, he also had no expression on his face when the sentence was read to him by Judge Michael J. Russo. The Cleveland house where all of this went down was demolished August 7th, 2013, as part of a plea, the plea agreement. Um, They didn't want it to become a tourist attraction. And while they were tearing it down, there were cheers from a group of people. Michelle Knight was there. She released a bunch of yellow balloons to remember all the kidnapping victims that have yet to be rescued. And it is now a garden. So Chris Mahandi, I don't know, but he's a forensic psychologist, not associated with this case, but he's a consultant in other long-term kidnapping cases. And he said, these are some of the most catastrophic kinds of experiences a human can be subjected to. He said perps of these types of crimes are men who have long standing fantasies of capturing, controlling, abusing and dominating women. They use a perverse system of rewards and punishments to create fear and submission in their victims who then lose all sense of self and become dependent on their captors. So it's the total control over a human being is what stimulates them. I know sometimes we try to figure these people out and I just thought. This forensic psychologist did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So back to Ariel. So annoying. He hung himself in prison and died. And I feel like I remember the collective conscious when this happened in the world and we were pissed. Like, I, yeah. I, it was so. Ugh. I think we all wanted him to rot in jail forever. Um, I think everyone was really excited for him to have to be captive and not have any control over his life. How do you remember how how much longer it was after? Not long at all. It was not even a month. Oh, like he got caught in May and he was dead in September. Oh, my God. Like he was sentenced in August, dead in September. It's like really fucked up. Oh, yeah. It's um really disappointing. Why did he have bed sheets? He should have. It doesn't make oh. that doesn't make it. That's such a fuck up. Oh, you don't th- you think there wasn't a, a fuck up and cover ups and fake documents with the police? Yeah, there are. Don't worry. Oh, my God. There's also like some weird shit with the death. So like, OK, some people say it was asphyxiation during a sex act because his pants were below his ankles. And 
Um, he didn't have underwear on, but he was found with the Bible open to John chapter two and three. He had a picture of his family out and like arranged in a poster board fashion. But yeah, his pants and down to his ankles. But some said he had a lot of trouble keeping pants on with all the weight he lost in prison. But how much weight can you lose in a month? You know? And then some yeah. people say he didn't wear underwear. So it's kind of strange. Um, there was a handwritten notes with religious things written on them. Some said, love my kids and grandkids and some hearts, flowers, musical notes. So it seems suicide, but the pants around the ankles did throw people for a loop. Either way, I think everyone was very disappointed that he did not die in captivity. Um, he was only one month into serving his sentence. Like I said, he was charged May 8th, 2013 and found dead in his cell September 3rd, 2013. God. Mm -hmm. Prison guards in Ohio falsified records and failed to properly complete their rounds on the day he hung himself. Surprise, surprise. Guards falsified uh, the log entries between 3 and 8.15 p.m. to say they checked on him when they had not. He was found dead at 8.45. They were supposed to go by his cell at least once every 30 minutes on an irregular schedule. They did not. The officers were placed on leave. LOL. Um, I don't know if anyone got <laughs> fired or if anything ever happened to them, but. They no one cared. Um, as of January 2020, some updates are that Gina and Amanda graduated from high school. Gina had a quinceanera that she never had. Gina was super excited to get her driver's license. And then Barry and so Amanda and Gina, they wrote a memoir together. I don't think they get along with Michelle. Oh, OK. So they're friends. And then Michelle's not their friend. I didn't want to get too deep into it. They're allowed to continue being connected or not connected to whoever they want yeah but and michelle has changed her name so i will go into all of that okay so yeah amanda and gina did write a memoir together um and then amanda barry she works with a local news station she covers missing children in the cleveland area and we know that jocelyn is thriving she is very special and wise beyond her years according to a former teacher March 2021, Amanda partnered with the U.S. Marshals Service for its initiative, Operation Safety Net. And in just one month, we're able to help safely locate 35 missing and endangered children. Wow. Um, yeah. And she said at first she was like super scared to leave the house or do anything. And now she really just feels lucky to be able to give people hope um, that their loved ones could be alive still. Gina became an ambassador for Northeast Ohio Amber Alert. And in 2018, Gina founded the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults um, to work with families to help them navigate the media and go to the police station and stuff like that. The center is located on the same street as where she was held captive and she wanted to change the neighborhood and make it positive and she wanted to give back. Um, and she started the center because after talking to her family, she really didn't like the way they were treated. When her mother called the police, they refused to do anything because they assumed she was a runaway. And she just wants to educate police on how to be better and compassionate with their jobs. And then Michelle Knight now goes by Lily Rose Lee. She said equine therapy helps her a lot. Um, and JC Duggar talked about that. So I guess equine therapy, I always think about 28 days, but I guess it really um, helps people with this uh, sort of trauma. And she is an international and New York Times bestselling author. Her memoir is called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed. And then a follow-up called Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness. She's married who, to who she calls the love of her life. And so, you know, some good endings for these women. Yeah. 
And this guy, Daniel J. Flannery, uh, he's a director for violence prevention research and education at Case Western Reserve University. And he says it's really not a one size fits all to how someone comes out of these situations to cope and reintegrate back into society. He says some people write, some people talk, some people do advocacy. And in this case, all the women have done all of those things and multiple of those things. One bad thing, though, is and this has nothing to do with the case, but just you know, very final destination. But Gina was carjacked at gunpoint May 2021. So of this year, she was carjacked at gunpoint, a very Olivia Benson, like give this girl a break, leave her alone. Yeah, She needs no more stuff, but she just gave them the keys without a fine and they drove off. And it's kind of, um, once you go through what you go through, I'm sure it's like, <laughs> take my shit. Nothing matters. Um, yeah. I know all about life. Also, right. um, while researching, there was a photo of, this is just, um, to end on like a more fun note, obviously we have a great interview, but, um, and this, this is a very heavy case. So this is just a little tidbit that I thought would be a nice positive moment. So during the research, there's an old people magazine cover. And of course, like, there's no reason to like compare. Everyone's allowed to go through what they go through. But the cover was three Ohio women free after 10 years, an amazing escape. And it's, it's about to be this giant people. And then on top, the second, um, the second headline is Bethany's brutal divorce. <laughs> Bethany Frankel. Yeah. <laughs> And so I was just thinking about her being like the richest homeless woman in New York and like how dramatic she is about her problems and that it's like, um, I mean, I'm sure the divorce sucked, but just. Well, insane that that divorce kind of just ended and these women were found eight years ago. Yeah. Like that's how long that dragged on in the national nightmare. Um, But wow, Lisa, a lot of great info there. Thank you for walking us through that horror. I mean, that just was like one of the most horrifying stories i still feel like it's just one of the worst stories of modern times well yeah it's like it also fucks with i mentioned this but your idea of what evil is and what evil looks like and who these people are that commit these crimes and um just the evil that lurks underneath i mean because the sinister like actions never ended it was like ripping of the photos making them watch their families cry on tv like it's more than just chains and rape it's like it never ends like his desire for sadist sadist sat sat what is it sadomasochism yeah sadistic sadism i don't know sadism yeah sadism like Yeah, it's like it it obviously doesn't make it better or worse, but sometimes it's like when you at least hear, oh, they were like a psychotic religious fanatic and they thought they were starting a cult of followers or they were this or they they thought this or they thought that like it almost makes you be like, okay, I kind of this guy just was like, I'm sick. And it's like, no, you're not even like there's nothing even diagnosable about you. You just wanted to control women and not have to and have slaves, essentially hated women yeah so to it's like who's worse him or cameron hooker you know it's like well i would say at least cameron at least at least ariel castro let them like be together talk to each other come upstairs and watch montel williams like yeah cameron hooker left a girl under a bed for seven years i mean that it's like you know yeah but same kind of situation with breaking them down. I mean, Cameron Hooker brought Colleen Stan home to her family and she still went back to him. So it's like the the bounds of Stockholm Syndrome are, you know, these guys understand how to use that, I feel like. Ooh. 
what a, I'm like shaking off this case. It's so gross. Yeah, no. And it is weird to think about Kimmy Schmidt at all as a show. Like it is weird to make a comedy. It is really sitcom. weird. I don't get how it passed so many hands and how I watched a season of it. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, they tried to make it really. Cause I think they tried to make it really obviously PG. It's like, he just kidnapped them and left them, kept them in a bunker and told them the world was going to end. But there's never sexual abuse. Like there's never, and there are some episodes where Kimmy has to kind of confront what happened to her, but like, it's still jokey. It's like very 30 rock, you know, it's like Tina Fey, but it is really strange that I see that that's how it was inspired by that, but that they let it be so to the letter, like to the point that there was a Mike Britt character. That's like that. I forget how the song goes. God, I used to have that song stuck in my head all the time. How does the song go to Kimmy Schmidt? Goodness, I just remember he had like one moment where he would say something. it's very reminiscent of hide your wives, hide your kids, hide your kids, hide your wives, but it's not that anyway. Yeah, I don't. It's just not funny. And I, it's really hard to think about how there's people right now kidnapped. Yeah. Being held. Yeah. If you see something, say something. If you see a fucking hand reaching out of a storm door yelling, help me, maybe call someone. But we'll get into that when we get into our postmortem. Let's get to our interview. We've got a really great one. <laughs> All right, guys, today's guest you may have seen most recently in the HBO series. I know this much is true alongside Mark Ruffalo. Excuse me. Uh, you might recognize her from another SVU episode, a classic called Totem season 12. But today you guys know her as Sissy or Kayla Grayland. Please check out our chat with the actress Agatha Nowicki. All right. Hi, Agatha. Hi. I'm Kara. This is Lisa. Hi, Kara. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for talking to us. Where are you? I'm in a fire island. I'm in New York City. I'm in Fire Island. Yeah. Oh my God. We I'm obsessed and I've never been. I'm obsessed. I've I've always wanted to go there. I just watch all of my gay guy friends go there my whole life. And I've just always wanted to go. How fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so beautiful right now. There's like no one here because it's like after season. Yeah. So that's so cool. Are Amazing. you doing pure vacation? No, I'm actually doing like, um, it's really crazy what I'm doing. I'm doing um, what they call a dream lab. So there's people here that are working on a script and they're trying to like develop the themes and the characters. And the producers hired a bunch of actors to do like dreams on behalf of the characters to infuse the material with like a higher level of consciousness and illuminate, illuminate like greater themes in the script. So what does that mean? What do you mean dreams? What do you mean? Like I go to, go to sleep at night and I'm given an assignment, like have a dream that reveals Chloe's struggle or something. So then I like get up and I act out a dream and it's like a really weird dream. Like me driving around in a Volvo chain smoking around like NYU or something, but somehow through the process of like, uh, improvising that dream, it reveals a theme in that, like a deeper theme in that character. And then the writers and producers are like, Oh, that's what that character is struggling with. And they add that to wow. the script. Wow. So you're almost collaborating on like the full plot of the script. Yes. Yeah. Wow. They're using the actors and their subconscious to improve the writing. But so wait, you have to dream this yourself. What if you go to no. sleep and don't have a dream? No, you're acting out the dream. 
Yeah, you're having the dream. So they give us a few nights. So we're here for like seven days. So we have a lot of time to like catch a dream, as they call it. Wow. Dream lab. (laughs) Damn. Well, thanks for talking to us today. We uh, okay. we love both of your episodes of SVU that you've been on. We wa- watched both of them recently, of course. Which one are we talking about? Well, today we're talking about imprisoned lives, but we would also love to talk about Totem as well. Okay, good. But both emotional yeah. parts. You really yes. know how to cry and uh, get the feels going on screen. Thank you. I'm glad I'm an actor because it gives me uh, like a purpose, a place to go with all my big feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not hard for you to cry. Yeah, I think it is hard. I think it is hard. I can't think of it in terms of crying. Otherwise, I can't cry. There's funny enough, there's like a moment in this episode, actually, where I was on set and the director was like, OK, now, like because I killed my audition, like I just cried a lot at the audition. It just like happened in the room because it's like it can never be the intention to cry because then you're not thinking about the thing that would make you cry. You're thinking about how do I cry? Right. So it doesn't work like that. But so when I got to set, we were shooting the first take the director was like okay now give us all that big emotion that you gave us in the room and I was like you might as well just have like shot me in the yeah <laughs> like, now the pressure's on and the intention is about that but it's okay we got through it we got through the episode yeah. oh wow so tell me about the process of like so when you went in you have you like you auditioned for um totem probably right Yes. So my audition story for Totem is really spectacular, actually, because I was in L.A. and I had no representation and I had been doing theater in L.A. and I really wanted to work in television. And I had worked like I booked like one little Criminal Minds episode before or something. And my manager at the time, Robin Ziegler, she was like, so I did the craziest thing, but I um, I submitted you for this guest star on Law and Order. And she's like, I know you're not here, but like if I get you the audition, like can you get here? Like, I don't know what to do. It's like tomorrow. And I was like, what? She's like tomorrow. So I was like, so broke at this time. I called my dad and I was like, I'm going to just go dude. Because like, I've never had an audition this big. Like I've never had a guest star audition. I've only done like a co-star before. I called my dad. I was like, dad, can I borrow like $700? Cause it's, that's how much the red eye costs for tomorrow. Cause it's like last minute to New York city. And he gives it to me and I go and I fly red eye and I wake up in the morning and I stop at my friend Chet's house at the time. I was like, can I crash at your place for this audition? He's like, sure. I walk up the Hudson river and like memorizing the lines for the totem audition. And I walk into the room and I get a call. I ended up getting a call back. So I was supposed, then I have to like push my flight and then I'm in New York city. And then I end up getting that job. And then I actually ended up moving to New York city. Oh my God. Wow. So it was like the biggest risk and it worked. What a dream. That is fantastic. And then have you been in New York this whole time or are you back and forth? I've always been kind of back and forth. I think I did like a good five solid years of like not going back and forth. But since then, my work has kind of like moved me depending on what I'm doing back and forth between LA and New York. Wow. And then so for Imprisoned Lives, did you have to audition again or did they just like bring you back or what was the deal with that one? Imprisoned Lives, Jonathan Strauss, the casting director, um, just called Robin and was like, I think Agatha would be really good for this. So um, obviously, because if you look at the two episodes, you're like, how do we get an emotionally stunted person that's like an adult? <laughs> 
not totally there, but like can actually figure out how to play this role. Um, and so, cause there are parallels obviously between those two characters. And then, so I went in and, um, yeah, I think I maybe went to just producers for that. I just went in when, um, Michael Slovis, the director was there and it was one of those beautiful auditions. I mean, it was just that moment where you like sit down in the chair. And I think I did the first take and there was a little like tension and nervousness. And then Michael Slovis was just like, just do it for yourself. And there was this calm in the room, like, and then it took over, you know, and then I was just like, it just took over. I might get that tattooed on my body. I like, love that. (laughs) I know. So powerful. I know. Amazing. This role in in Prison Lives is so, I was just looking it up. I was looking up when Room came out because this is very similar to the movie Room, but like you kind of, you, this role predates that. So you didn't even have, you know. Not that you, not that you copy other actors roles, but you know, that was like a huge role for, yes, I think she won an Oscar for it, you know, like, so I know, you know, but you were the first, (laughs) she got her Oscar. I was like, okay, but did you guys see my episode of Law and Order before this? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) No, it's awesome. And what's extra cool is you got to be there for the Neil bear years and then the war and light years, um, like early season, late season. And so we're curious, um, was it different vibes? How have things changed, um, from, you know, your first to your second episode? Yeah. Um, both of my experiences were really beautiful. Um, I owe a lot of that. I think definitely to Mariska, she creates an environment on set that is, I I don't know, precious. She's the mama bear. It's her set. She is aware of everything that's going on. She's the ultimate boss, like ultimate in charge of everything, but vulnerable at the drop of a hat, you know, and is that the saying? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) So she's there. She's so present. And so that made me feel like safe. And I had a place. I remember even on my first episode of Totem, you know, because this material is like, both of them are so exposing and you do show up with, I have to show up with my most fragile kind of whatever. I have to take the guard down, right? So you need someone to be your guard and to be your advocate in order for you to be kind of focused on what you're supposed to be focused on. And I remember we were shooting one of the scenes and Mariska kind of like, she put her hands on my shoulders and it was just like, I knew she was holding space for me in the set and everyone was so loud. And then eventually she was just like, you guys, silence. And it was just, it was just like, it was like those kind of moments. It's like where she made me coming onto her set, the priority that day, you know, and then there's an energy. So then you're just in that energy, that wonderful, like law and order suspense energy of like, there is a magic. It's like, what is going to happen? You know? And then it happens. So I was really great for that to that. And then Warren Light was tremendous. I mean, tremendous because he comes from a theater background. So I had been in Hollywood. I had been doing that whole thing where I kept feeling like I didn't know how to have an artistic experience in that town. Not that there's not tons of artists in that town, but I, it's such an industry town and there's such a sense of like a revolving door next whoever and polished performances. And there's just, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, and from the beginning, like when I walked into Jonathan's room, the casting director, Jonathan Strauss, he was just like, 
I mean, he was like on the floor with me doing the scene. I had never felt so like, wow, this is the point. Like we came into this room to find the truth of this character. And like, you're in from, from the beginning and you're holding space to that. And then Warren late the same way. I mean, he was just, I, I don't know, just super fan and super warm. And even after the show, he wrote me like recommendation letters for people and was like, Agatha was one of my favorite guest stars on the show. And like wow. walked around town with that letter and I got meetings and people paid attention and, and Mariska did the same thing. I mean, everybody on that set kind of rallied for me afterwards to find representation, to take meetings. Yeah. It's amazing. That's so cool. Wow. We love to hear this. I'm getting chills. That's so. Oh, yeah. She invited me to like a Hollywood party, like in LA. Like I came back at a holiday party. It was like a big grand gala benefit or something just so I could come and like sit and next to Hillary Swank and all of her friends. And she was just like, This is Agatha. She was on Law and Order. She's amazing. Like so freaking generous. Like so generous. It's like really wild because we've talked to a lot of actors from the show and everybody's like, Oh, she, the set's amazing. She's number one on the call sheet. She sets the tone she's so great and then like everybody we talk to has one more story that like notches it up how amazing she is like to invite you to like a party like that and to try to get you representation it's like out of this it's 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 unbelievable yeah it's not heard of wow that was so i really love everything you said um you also with this episode not only with marishka but you got to work with like that episode is jam-packed with so much of the cast. There's Amaro, Rollins, Finn, Munch, Cragen, Barba, Cassidy. Like, to have a overlap of all of those characters is really rare. And then you also got to work with Maloney in the past. Do you have any stories or moments with any of those people you'd like to share? I just am obsessed with Christopher Maloney. Like, I, <laughs> like I wasn't a Law & Order fan, yeah. and when I saw him on set... He's magical. He's like this hunky alpha male in every kind of way, but like a just a clown dork. You know what I mean? And so it's like, <laughs> it's like he was just making everybody laugh in between takes and their chemistry is like so fun. I mean, it's like being in high school and being like the bad kids. They're always like laughing in class, like when they shouldn't be or something. <laughs> like just a wonderful juxtaposition to the insanity. But I have to say that in the totem episode, and this is what I get credit for most or people mentioned to me from the show is like the confession scene. I don't know if you remember, but it's like really dark. Yeah. We were in the room together and um, Jeremy Irons was also guest starring on this episode. He yeah. Was pedophile psychologist, which is also so crazy because my mother grew up like a hardcore Jeremy Irons fans. So it was like some cosmic manifestation where like the first role I booked was like her, her crush from whenever, you know, <laughs> actually Jeremy Irons called my mom from set that day to tell her, tell her like what a good job I did. Like it was just incredible. Oh my God. Your mom must've been freaking out. She still has like the picture of me in like my creepy sweater and like looking all law and ordery with Jeremy <laughs> Irons. And she has it like on her office wall, like in front of the computer. It's like her proudest moment of me. Um, so that scene in particular, it was also one of those things like, I don't, I don't want to sound whatever it is. It is what it is. It's like, sometimes your art just shows up for you. Like you prepare and whatever, and you do everything you can to be relaxed and to be open, to create a space for something to surprise you. And it felt like that, like Marishka and Jeremy were watching from the window, 
you know, and this is like a big deal in my mind. I'd never been on a set like this. So it's like, okay, this is your big scene, you know? And like, um, Chris Maloney's like sitting across from me and Marishka and Jeremy are watching from behind the glass. Cause it's the interview booth room or whatever. And I just remember looking at Chris and the compassion in his eyes and the, the empathy he looked at me with, like carved that performance too, you know, he just like held space. And I was like with him in that little bubble and something happened, you know? And when I watch that to this day, I'm like, Oh, that's weird. Like it almost creeps me out because I can feel something coming through. That's not totally me, you know? Wow. You're maybe one of the most prepared actors that we've talked to. Really? Wow. Oh, that's cool. And the most in tune with a lot of stuff. I'm like very in awe. I'm very into this convo. So when you would be in this method space, getting into these people or like these feelings, did it, how do you shut it off? Or are you just kind of like, I'm going to be sad for a few weeks? So the Law and Order episodes really drained me. I'll tell you, like I left those, both of those sets with like a migraine and dehydrated because I, and not because of anything anyone did on set to me, just because of what I did to myself on set. And I'm not advocating this for actors. I just, because I cared so much to do a good job and because I hadn't had that much experience yet on set, I really felt like I had to cocoon myself in it. And I know people, eventually you get better and I have gotten better as I've gotten older of like, just tapping it, knowing when you're going to tap in and to like manage the timing of that. So you're not just like, I'm going to sit in a suffering pile of hell for <laughs> two weeks. You know, like I don't, I don't really work that way anymore, I think. But for those episodes, I did, I did. I dropped in and I hung out in there until I was kind of done. So you, so you're not going back to the hotel and like, eating pizza and watching a show, you kind of stay in. Okay, yeah. And I was like very, besides like with Marishka um, and in between my scenes on set, I was very much in my trailer. I was working. I was working till like the knock on the door came. And I said, like, I told the AD, I said, just give me 15 minutes. Cause sometimes they forget with the guest stars to like, let them know, you know, like um, it's just, there's so much to manage. And it's like, you know, you're not that important. So it's like, you almost have to advocate for yourself. Like, look, I know I'm part of this like well-oiled machine, but like, I just need a little bit of a heads up so that I show up prepared on set, you know? So I just kind of went into my room and yeah, just started working, doing like relaxation exercises, listening to music, and then starting to do my sensory work, which is like the two episodes were really different. I actually did the craziest prep for the totem because there was a lot of physicality in that girl because she was, um, like in sorry to say I'm sure it's not um shocking to your audience but she molested children and I was like I don't even know how to go there I'm not gonna go there right like I don't molest children I'm not gonna go there in my mind but what is that and I'm like the only way you can do that is if you believe you're not doing anything wrong like if you believe somehow that like that's your version of love you know and in all characters, you have to come up with the reason why their intentions work for them. You know, why there's no, cause no one doesn't, most people, unless you're like Jeffrey Dahmer, whatever, these really fucked up people, like you have some good reasoning for why you're doing what you're doing. And it's your job to find that in the character. So like for Totem, I knew she had to be stunted. I knew that her mother had done that to her. So I knew that she equated that with love and that when she founded another kid, she was just going to be passing on this behavior. So I knew there was like a developmental thing 
And I had in an acting class like forever ago worked on this sounds crazy, but this is how it works. I worked on a sea lion external. So you take the externals of an animal, which are like, you know, rocking back and forth and begging for fish. And if you like keep making that smaller movement, smaller and smaller and living in that energy, you just have the vibe of like begging and not being totally there and like a one track mind. So I did that. That's like my secret trick for that whole episode. So I did a sea lion external like the whole time. But when people watch that show, I think that's what they resonate with. It's like something's going on. You don't know what, you know. That's so interesting. And did you pick a sea lion or is that a common thing? Do you do other animals sometimes? I do other. I've done other animals. Yeah. But I have that one like in my bag of tricks from like some workshop I had done. And when I had translated it in a class, like because you take it from the animal form into the human form slowly so that you don't lose the rhythms of the animal and then you see the effects. And so the feedback I got from everybody when I was doing that was that looks like a stunted person. That looks like a person with a developmental disorder. That looks like a person that's unsure of themselves and their body. So it was kind of like I have certain certain animals I know kind of what energy they stimulate in me and what it kind of like looks like from the outside, you know? Um, so it was like a collision of perfect moments. Like I read that script and I was like, oh, I need something developmentally stunted. And I was like, I have it. And I just like, it was like wow. what they say about actors, like preparation, meeting opportunity. Like that's what that moment was, you know? Wow. Cause I don't even think sea lion, but that's like, um, but they are totally shape. I mean, I just, um, I see it's kind of like a mat, like uh, revealing a magic trick in a way where I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. I see it. <laughs> yeah. Now go back and watch it and look for the sea lion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agatha, my new spiritual healer. I did a song too. It was too. Agatha <laughs> all along. Isn't that from that show? It was Agatha all along. Yeah. From, um, I don't know what you're talking about. Fuck it. You know what I'm talking about. It's from what's that show that was just huge during pandemic. I keep wanting to say Wonder Woman and it's it's fucking. Oh, Dan- WandaVision. WandaVision. Yeah. WandaVision. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Catherine Hahn is Agatha. Anyway, Agatha Nowicki was so cool. And she told us also that she was a writer's room in this new HBO show called Gorilla and the Bird, which is from Jean-Marc Ballet, the guy who did Big Little Lies. Hello. So keep an eye out for that when it comes out. I mean, this episode, this case, so fucking difficult. I, I don't know what the postmortem is. Like, never walk anywhere by yourself, women. Constantly carry a knife on you and a gun. I don't know. It's like... um, Yeah, because we researched so, lots of different things. And we'll, I think I've realized the cases that fuck me up the hardest are the, like, contained multi-year torture yeah. not being able to leave situations i don't think i'm unique i'm sure every, some people can relate but i think the these are the worst for me to think about yeah yeah and like just being yeah it's really tough but i hope these women are continuing to heal and thrive and have positive lives and good things happen to them yeah for sure and I feel like we learned a lot from Agatha. She had a lot of um, amazing insights and be a seal, baby. Go back. To, that's what I'm thinking. Acting like go to your most animalistic, pure human, emo- like not human emotion, animal emotion, animal instinct. Yeah. <laughs> like narrow. I don't know. It's um, it was very interesting, but also about this, that 
criminals are not smart. They're disgusting. Cops are not smart. They're bad at their jobs and everyone's a nightmare. So keep that in your pocket. Yeah. Ooh. And I love that guy who said, I knew something was wrong when a, when a white lady came yeah. running into my arms. I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I love a hero. Yeah. I am horrified by this case and as a nation, and it sucks that he was able to not, I we all wanted him to live the constricted life that he put onto others. Um, a real eye for an eye situation. And it's like, it's a collective weird thing that he was able to end it. Yeah. I did forget. We forgot to talk about this last week. You know, I was catching up on the SVUs, but Johnny Pemberton, our friend who does comedy, really killed it. Oh, yes. If you caught the episode that was about an ice cream truck driver who was assaulting women while their children watched Nightmare of Nightmares, the rapist was our friend Johnny. And he is not a rapist in real life. Such a good guy and did, did a great job and had to wear amazing prosthetic makeup to make his face look like he got beat up in jail. And it was woo, tough to see your pal. He also got to get tackled by all the detectives. I mean, I was like, you had a role of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It was Ooh, great. So, so check thrilling. out Johnny in that episode, but we'll try to have him on the pod. Um, meanwhile. <laughs> meanwhile. <laughs> sorry, there's so many pauses. I do feel this case um, weighs heavy on my heart and mind. Like I get into a spiral where I just like imagine being tricked by my friend's dad. And then all of a sudden, now I'm being raped for a decade, covered in chains in a room. What? Yeah. But also, it's just crazy that the cops couldn't put it together that this that that this man was a through line between all of them, that his daughter knew all of them. And like, I don't know, I just want the cops to do better with finding these kinds of things because it's so horrific. And, um, you know, a lot of it's racist, I feel like, too, that they couldn't find some of these girls or or classes that they just thought that these girls were like, oh, they ran away. They're gone. You know, whereas like, who knows if it was like wealthy, sweet little pigtail blonde girls, we might have found them, you know? Yeah. Anyway, this week for our What Would Sister Peg Do segment, which, as you know, is our segment where we highlight an organization or an article or a book or something that can give you more information about what we talked about in today's episode. We wanted to bring to your attention an organization called Cleveland Missing, which is clevelandmissing.org. And it was founded by Gina de Jesus, one of the victims of this horrible crime. And uh, she founded this alongside her cousin and social activist, Sylvia Colon. And its mission is to deter abductions, exploitations, and trafficking of all ages and genders, and to establish a place for families and survivors to come for support and resources. Yeah, they do community prevention training, raise awareness, and are trying to bring, you know, safety and security to uh, all of Cleveland citizens. So check out their website for ways to donate or check out their events, resources, and more stuff at clevelandmissing.org. Thanks for that. I do love um, Cleveland a lot. So <laughs> beautiful art museum. Anyways, was that a weird thing to say? No. Okay. So listen, next week's episode is Witness. Another classic, you might know it as the episode with Nardalee, season 11, episode 16. Join us on this journey on Hulu, Peacock, or wherever you are able to watch SVU. Thanks for watching, JK, listening to That's Messed Up.
That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>